We're in our third message in the City on the Hill series, and we want to talk this morning about the Word is proclaimed. Now, I remember when I was called to ministry. In fact, Terry was called to ministry before I was. Uh, the night before, she beat me by about 22 hours, but, uh, but uh, I remember when I was called to ministry, and two weeks later, I preached my first sermon. And I thought I had enough material to go about 45 minutes. 18 minutes after I started, I was through. Some of you wish I'd preach that long now. But uh, I remember that first sermon. I remembered when I went to college and I was preaching a youth revival in a church outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And, I, you know, I was, in, I was in that preaching mode. I was learning how to preach, and I was, I was kind of in that mode, and I was revved up. And, and I'd put my Bible down on the pulpit just like this, and, and I got way over here. I mean, as far, as close to the piano as I could on this little stage. And I said, and Jesus said, and I went absolutely blank. And on my way back to my notes, I said, and you better think about that. <laughs> I don't know what Jesus said at that point, but they better think about it. We're going to look at the first sermon that Simon Peter preached after uh, the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost. And we're also going to look in, the, in Paul's letters to Timothy about the importance of the proclamation of the Word of God. Most commentators and, and uh professors who teach preaching will tell you that Peter's first sermon is a classic example of the exposition of Scripture. It's a classic example of how to present the gospel. And so I want to look at that sermon a little bit because you see a man who has been a failure, but under the power of the Holy Spirit, he proclaims the Word of God. Now, I, I believe that the Word teaches that a great church is a great church if it's unapologetic about the Word of God. I don't think we can ask God to bless it if we're apologizing for it. I don't think we can ask God to move and work in the hearts of people and bring the lost to Christ and the saved to deeper commitment if we're not saying this is what the Lord says and He has not stuttered. Now, preaching is defined in a number of ways. In the dictionary, it's defined as to deliver a sermon, to exhort, to deliver a religious address to an assembled group of people, or to earnestly advocate a principle. But we live in a postmodern relative thinking world, and an additional definition has been added to preaching, which says to give moral advice in a self-righteous way. You see, the world thinks, because we've lost the perspective of right and wrong and black and white, the world thinks that if you say this is what God says, you're being self-righteous. No, I'm just saying what God says. You got a problem with it, you take it up with the Lord. I'm just repeating what he said. And his word calls us to preach the gospel. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So a church that is a city on a hill, first of all, the word is proclaimed with clarity. Amen. It's proclaimed with clarity. Now, uh, I've served a church and, and some others of us have been in places where, where you needed a thesaurus 
and your Bible to try to figure out some of what was being said. I mean, it was eloquent and it was impressive, but it, it, it needs to be understood. The Word of God preached should be able to in some way communicate with every age group, with every level of education, regardless of where somebody's coming from, they can connect with something that's going on in that word. Because God's word is not limited to an age group or to an education. God's word is broad enough, but it is narrow in the fact that we can't decide whether we like what it says or not. We have to line ourselves up to it. When, when I analyze Simon Peter's sermon in Acts, there are three characteristics. Number one, it was simple. It, it was just simple. Now, you're talking about people that have been raised in an environment of Deuteronomy 6 where the Word is taught in the home. These are not people that are casual observers of church. The Word is taught in the home. It's taught in the streets. Uh, many people will have memorized large sections of Scripture. But when Peter preaches and calls for people to respond, it's a simple message. Secondly, it's scriptural. He quotes Joel and the Psalms. So here's an uneducated fisherman who quotes the prophet Joel and quotes the Psalms to bring a message to a point of conclusion. So it's simple, it's scriptural, and it's also Savior-centered. It's Savior-centered. I don't care where you are in the Bible. We do a song every now and then uh, called I Am. I don't care where you are in the Bible. The Bible runs you to the cross. From Genesis to Revelation, it always takes you back to Jesus. And Peter's sermon was Savior-centered. It, it was not on the, the flames of fire. It was not on the languages. It was not on the events. It was not on the feelings. It was Savior-centered. Now, Chuck Swindoll, in an excellent little book that he wrote, gave six doctrines about Christ from Acts chapter 2, and I just want to give them to you because I think they're worth repeating. Number one, incarnation. When Peter is preaching, he preaches incarnation. Jesus the Nazarene, a man. That's verse 22. He preaches the incarnation of Christ. Secondly, authenticity. Look at what he says, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. In other words, Peter's saying, this is the real deal, folks. This is, we've been waiting and longing and praying for Messiah, and this is it. It's authenticated by miracles and wonders and signs. Then he preaches crucifixion, the cross. This man you nailed to the cross and put him to death, verse 23. He preaches the cross. He doesn't deny the cross. He doesn't ignore the cross. He doesn't try to go around the cross. He preaches the cross. Then he preaches resurrection. God raised him up again, verse 24. God raised him up again. You see, if you don't preach incarnation and add the crucifixion and the resurrection, you've not preached the whole gospel. Some people want to keep Jesus in a little manger as a baby because he looks safe to them. And he's just a decoration in their home. But the, the incarnate Christ will wreck your life if you're trying to live life on your terms. He'll confront you with his cross 
and with his resurrection as the validity of his proclamation of being the Son of God. Then there was ascension. He quotes Psalm 110, having been exalted to the right hand of God. He preaches the ascension of Christ. And then he preaches the glorification of Christ. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Paul picks up on this in Philippians chapter 2, but in verse 36, Peter says, God has made him both Lord and Christ. One of the reasons our churches are shallow today is because we have forgotten the imperative of the gospel message, the unction of the gospel message, and we've ignored it 34 times you see the word preach in the New Testament. Now, we want to change it sometimes because we would rather be cool. But God chose to use the word, which is translated, and at its very core means to proclaim, to preach. It doesn't mean pep talk. It doesn't mean back scratch. It means to preach with unction and with power. And if God chose to use that, then I don't think I'm in authority to change it. So I just want to give you some references that are going to come on the screen. It'll give you enough time to write down the references and look for yourself. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 10, 7, and as you go, he's talking to the disciples, preach. Verse, uh, Matthew 11, verse 1, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. By the way, that's the strategy of Sin North America. That's why the North American Mission Board is focusing on 27 key cities in America because we've lost our cities. We're losing the suburbs and the countryside. We've got to go back into the cities and win the cities for Christ. Mark chapter 1 and verse 38. Let us go somewhere else to, <coughs> excuse me, to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for it's what I came for. Yes, if you would, Stephen. Thank you. Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. Thank you. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a denial of us four and no more. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. What makes what we do at the Coke plant and in inner city missions different than what the government does, the government doesn't preach the gospel. If it preaches the gospel, it says, if we put clothes and food on people, then they'll be better off, but they'll still be lost and going to hell. The reason we do what we do where we do it is because we don't want to just minister to people's physical needs. We want to minister to people's spiritual needs because you can fix a physical problem and they still die and spend eternity without Christ. So we, we are to preach the gospel to the poor, not just give them food and not just help them with life and life skills, but to preach the gospel to them. There's no need to do what we do otherwise. We could just increase our taxes and let the government do it all for us. That went over everybody's head. <laughs> are y'all awake or are you already thinking about Thanksgiving? <laughs> Acts chapter 10 and verse 42. 
and he ordered us to preach to the people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants. Now, I know that people don't like preaching, but as long as God gives me breath and ability, that's what I'm going to do. Because it is in the preaching of the gospel of Christ that lives are changed. Lives are not changed by me commenting on society. Lives are changed by the power of the cross and the gospel of Christ. So in a church that is a city on a hill, If you're looking for a church and you're trying to figure out, you better not ever join or encourage anybody to join a church that is not crystal clear on the authority of the Word of God. Because if you do, they'll end up in error or could end up lost, thinking that because they're getting religion that they're going to heaven. The Word of God in clarity. Secondly, the Word is proclaimed without compromise. The Word is proclaimed without compromise. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He didn't say, I am a light. It's a definite article in the Greek. I am the light of the world. And then Jesus said, you are the light of the world and let your light so shine before men. So what light are we shining? Well, it's not a Southern Baptist light. It's a gospel light. It's a biblical light. It's the light of Jesus. And our light is only as effective as Jesus is evident in us as we proclaim his word. And that doesn't mean just in the pulpit on Sunday. That means in our coming and going throughout the day and throughout the week. Too much preaching is experiential and not biblical. It's humanistic, not evangelistic. Paul said in Romans 10, verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear if there's not a preacher? In a moment, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you're going to have an opportunity to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Everybody that Jesus called, he called publicly. You say, well, I'll just pray right here in my seat. I'm in the balcony or I'm, I'm in the mezzanine or I'm in the back or there are a lot of people around me and I'll just pray right here and ask Jesus into my heart. You know what? He will. He'll come into your heart. But if Jesus also said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. Every call of Jesus for a profession of faith was a public call. You declare where you stand. You declare who you serve. When Peter preached the sermon in Acts chapter 2, he was calling for a public response. Remember, he's calling for them to repent of Jewish religionist behavior and be baptized and admit that keeping the law and being good was not sufficient for salvation. So it was a public call. On the day of Pentecost, when there are hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem celebrating a religious festival, 
Peter calls them out of the crowd and says, get out of that religious meeting and get down here and tell me you mean business for Jesus. So I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment. Whether you're a church member or you just walked in off the street, you're not here by accident. But I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ by getting up and walking down one of these aisles and finding one of our ministers and saying, I need to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior today. Why is it important? Because heaven and hell is your future, one or the other. And that's why it's important. The message says this in 2 Timothy 4.3. You're going to find that there will be times when people will have no stomach for solid teaching, but will fill up their, with spiritual junk food, catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They'll turn their backs on truth and chase mirages. I believe that the reason that 9,000 Southern Baptist churches didn't baptize anybody last year is because they've forgotten that preaching the Word calls us to do something and not chase fancy images and mirages. It's a call to conviction. We don't have a stomach for truth in many of our churches today. We don't want to hear what God says. And I want you to notice this word, and you just write it down in your note. Where notes in the message where it says, chasing mirages, New American Standard says myths in 2 Timothy 4.4. 4. The word myth means a popular belief that guides human thought, but is not based on the word of God. It's a myth because it has no basis. It's a popular belief. There, there are a lot of popular beliefs today. Believe whatever you want, and God in his mercy is going to let you go to heaven whether you ever confess his son or not. That's a myth. And too many preachers have preached people into heaven that gave no evidence of saving faith during their life because they didn't want to offend the family. I want to tell you something. That person that's in hell today would scream to the top of their lungs for you to be saved if they could speak to you. And it's hard for us to think that somebody could have been religious and sat in a church for years and been on a church row and been lost, but our churches are full of them. This church has at least a thousand because we've got a thousand people that haven't darkened the door of this church in a year. That is a lack of evidence of salvation. You have on your Sunday school roles, teachers, men and women who play church and they're going to hell and you're not even praying or thinking or visiting them and talking to them about a confrontation with Jesus Christ. Say, well, uh, well, why don't we just drop them? Well, that's just let them to go to hell by default. No, they're under our watch, and we have to do something about it. And we can't sit casually about it and think, hey, let's think about that after the holidays are over. Some of the people on our church row won't be alive when the holidays are over. We have to preach the gospel. Now, <clears throat> one commentator talks about these myths. He talks about the myth of individualism. You know, I do whatever I want. I don't have to answer to anybody. The myth of victimization. You can't blame me for my problems. You can't blame me for the way I am. It's because of the environment I was raised in. It was because of this, because of that. Listen, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Amen. 
You're not held back by the baggage of your past. You know, that's, that's the gift of whining. And God has given you the ability to win through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's the myth of materialism. I can be happy with the next thing I get. Some of you are already figuring out, guess who's open on Thursday for Black Friday? Run! Go! They've only got two TVs that price at Walmart. Run over everybody! Get out of my way! Have a happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) We're so consumed by what we're going to buy, and guess what? Some percentage, and probably a high percentage, of what you get for Christmas, you're going to sell in a yard sale, or if you die, your kids are going to just give it to Goodwill to get a write-off. Because they're going to look and go, What? My dad bought all these plates. I mean, they were little, you know, Ford signed and numbered plates on Oklahoma and on carousel and all this kind of stuff. And we gave them away. My dad said, those things are worth money. No, they weren't. (laughs) I mean, he told me, he said, you know, some of your inheritance is in these plates. And I just went, thanks a lot, dad. I had to spend gas money to give them to people. <laughs> he said, there's one plate here worth $800. We never found it. <laughs> but there are people that think that the myth of the American dream, I can have more money. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And our dream bubble has burst several times in my lifetime. When you think, I've got enough money to, to retire, I've got enough money to do this, I've got enough money to do that, and then all of a sudden you got no money. Then there's a myth of beginnings. <clears throat> One Harvard professor recently said, man is the result of a purposeless, purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. In other words, he said, man's not even supposed to be here. Now, there's a guy somebody's paying to educate people. Well, I think you ought to get an A in that class because if you're not supposed to be here, then you shouldn't have to come and you shouldn't have to take the test, so you should get an A because you weren't supposed to be there anyway. I mean, the illogic of the logic of this world is crazy. But here's what Paul is talking about. When Paul uses the word myths, He's talking about religion that is a form of godliness without the power. He's talking about religious moralism and legalism and a secular application of Scripture. You know, people say, you know, keep the golden rule. If I could just live by what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, then I think God will like me and love me and get me to heaven. Listen, you can live by the Beatitudes all you want. The problem is you can't live by the Beatitudes without the power of Jesus Christ inside of you. You can't do it. It's an impossible standard. I want to tell you how impossible the words of Jesus are. (laughs) Love your neighbor as yourself. I can't do that apart from the power of God. That's the life-changing power of the gospel. It empowers me to do that which I cannot do in my best day on my own. 
And then last, uh, secondly, the light is proclaimed to convict. The light is proclaimed to convict. A preacher without the Word of God is like a surgeon without a scalpel or a builder without a ruler and a hammer. Preaching the Word of God was to cut to the heart. That's what Acts chapter 2 says. When, when Peter preached, it cut them to the heart. It wasn't Peter's opinion. I wish it had been Peter's telling stories about his mother-in-law because then I could have told more. That wasn't it. Peter preached the word of God. Jeremiah said that God has said, is not my word like a hammer that breaks a rock to pieces? Now turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know this verse, but I want you to turn to it. And this is something about once a year I do for new people and to remind us all of us who have been here for a while, about what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. This is a crucial verse on why you never apologize for the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that... The man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, let's just look at it. For teaching or for doctrine, that's what is right. For reproof, that's what's not right. Correction, how to get it right. Instructions in righteousness, how to stay right. What does God's Word address? Well, I, you know, I just don't think the Bible speaks to me. Well, it's profitable for you to get right, <laughs> to stay right to tell you when you're not right, okay? It's for teaching, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In other words, everything I need to understand how to walk in a way that pleases God is contained within the Scripture. Amen. Now, here, here's the problem with some preaching today. Some people just focus on doctrine. I mean, they, they, wanted, you know, they want every sermon to be a systematic theology lesson. Well, there is systematic theology in the scriptures, but before there was ever a systematic theology, there was a love story. We have systematized for our Western thinking theology, but in Eastern thinking, they don't think systems, they think stories, images, pictures. That's why the Bible is written the way it's written. We've tried to make God fit into our systems. And so we get a system that we like, and we run with the system, and we put our system on top of the Bible, and we start our, uh, honoring certain doctrines that we have preference over, or teachings that we have preference over. And, you know, I, I've talked to people about certain doctrines that are real firm on their doctrine and, and empty on their giving. I remember talking to a guy about the doctrine of salvation one day, and I couldn't think, I'd known him for 20 years, I couldn't think of one person he'd ever led to Christ. But he was convinced I was wrong on the doctrine of salvation. I say, put up or shut up. I mean, there are lost people out there. Surely you can find one. Some people are overboard on doctrine. Some people are overboard on reproof. That's what uh, legalistic churches do. They, they, they just always go on the don't list. Don't do this. Don't do, you know, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. And 
I mean, they're just always on the don't list. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't do, I mean, they're, you know, they think that you get holy by withdrawing from society. You don't get holy by withdrawing from society. Jesus saved us out of the world to put us back into the world so that we could show the world the difference that Jesus makes in the world. Some churches uh, focus only on correction. They're always trying to tell everybody. And by the way, in correction, it's always somebody trying to tell everybody what they're doing wrong. Never saying, this is what I'm doing wrong. I, I, I sat in a meeting this week with some people that I highly respect, and, and I confessed some things that I did wrong in a previous meeting, just to, because if I can't do that, then I can't expect anybody else to do that. But some, fo- some people focus only on correction. In other words, it's always hands out like this. Don't, I don't want to receive anything myself. And then some people focus only on feelings. They drift into emotionalism and signs and wonders, and there's no sound doctrine. But Peter's sermon was full of doctrine. It was full of reproof. He reproved sin. It was correction and training and righteousness. Now, if you go back and read Peter's sermon, here's what you find. He uses the second person, you. Now, was Peter guilty of sin? Absolutely. Did Peter need the thing that he was preaching? Absolutely. But he didn't preach in first and third person plural, we or they. He preached you. He was bringing conviction. You crucified him. You killed him. But God has raised him from the dead. He was bringing conviction to the heart. And it says when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? You see, superficial preaching never convicts. And shallow preaching never takes people deep with God. So until a person is convicted, there can't be conversion. There has to be conviction to be conversion. They asked Peter, what does this mean and what shall we do? The Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? The gospel calls people to repent. And repentance is the message since the days of Noah. It was the message of the prophets. It was the message of Jesus. It was the message of the apostles. The word repent. Now, let me tell you what repentant is and is not. Repentance is not remorse. It's not remorse. I'm really sad and sorry that I did that. The rich young ruler went away sad but he wasn't repentant. And notice Jesus didn't chase at him to try to get his numbers or his wallet. He let him go. Repentance is also not regret. I feel bad about what I've done. I, you know, I'm sorry I did. Now I really feel bad about what I did. King Saul had regret, but he had no repentance. David repented. King Saul just had regret. And when he got caught sinning, He said to the prophet, go with me and make me look good to the people. He had regret, but he wanted to save face. And listen, you know what can keep you from being saved? You know what can keep you from being right with God? You want to save face, which is pride. You're worried about what people think about you instead of what God knows that you need to do. 
Repentance is not resolve. It's not turning over a new leaf or trying to do better. That's, that's acting out in your flesh. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of direction. It is agreeing with God that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. It is agreeing with God that I am a saint who has sin that needs to be confessed. It is agreeing with God's Word in my attitudes, my affections, and my actions. I change. Old things are passed away, and all things become new. Jesus' first sermon was repent and believe, Luke 24, 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. The message of Jesus commenced, continued, and concluded with repentance. The last thing Jesus said to the church was repent or else. Preaching calls us to the altar of repentance. Look on the screen, if you would, at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now stand with me 